From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. Today, in an exclusive conversation with the AJC, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger said election workers are concerned about threats and what he expects to be the pressure cooker atmosphere of the 2024 election. I'm Greg Bluestein. State-sponsored vouchers for private education have gone down in flames in past legislative sessions, but advocates will try again when lawmakers convene in January. We'll talk to the legislature who changed parties to align herself with the Republicans who support school vouchers. I'm Tia Mitchell. Plus, we'll look at some top issues in Southeast Georgia. We'll ask AJC Savannah Bureau Chief Adam Van Bremer why there's a push for another multi-billion dollar expansion of the Port of Savannah. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia, where we aim to set the stakes in the agenda for Georgia politics. I'm Bill Nygut, uh, here with the uh, Greg Bluestein, political reporter Greg Bluestein, in the studio, but also in the studio, Tia Mitchell. I'm here, Washington still here. Correspondent Live. For the, we're really, you know, it's been really great to have you here in town with us. Thanks. It's, it's been fun being here. Um, we had an event last night. We can talk about it very briefly. It was just a little event with, um, I think, thought leaders, state legislators, some corporate business people kind of introducing everybody to our team at Politically Georgia. It was kind of fun. And Bill, there were yard signs and buttons. <laughs> and all my friends now are going to be using that uh, as punishment for when we lose our fantasy football leagues. You're going to have to put a yard sign of us. In their front lawns. That's right. Each of us had a, basically a campaign sign and a campaign button. Yes, <laughs> it was a cute, like, patriotic theme. Um, so a lot of folks in their red, white, and blue. And um, a lot of American flags. And um, it was a cool, you know, we got to talk about what we're doing with the show. We got to have our special guest that we'll talk about in a minute. And it was a fun night. Well, let's talk about that right now. Uh, Greg Bluestein, um, Brad Raffensperger, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, was that special guest. And you and Patricia, uh, after all of us got a chance to talk a bit about uh, politics and, and the show, you and Patricia spent some time talking to um, Secretary of State Raffensperger. And um, I thought he made some interesting news. Among other things, he talked about what he expects to see as the pressure cooker environment as election 2024 approaches and how they're taking steps to protect election workers. Yeah, I mean, think about it this way, Bill. In the last few weeks alone, he's had to distribute, the state has had to distribute medication in case there's another fentanyl attack, mailers with fentanyl going to election offices. And even as we speak, Rudy Giuliani is in a trial in Washington involving the two former Fulton County election workers who he falsely accused of, 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 of election fraud. And he is still among those 
Trump supporters who were saying that there was election widespread election fraud in 2020 that we, of course, know is a lie. Tia, um, the other thing that uh, Patricia and Greg tried to press him on was whether or not Brad Raffensperger, famous across the country, of course, for his phone call in which uh, Donald Trump asked him to find 11,000 votes, and he said, not going to do it. We don't have them, uh, Mr. President. Uh, They pushed him. Is he going to support, if Trump is the nominee, will he support Donald Trump? Here's just a little of what he said. Let's listen and then talk about it. It's always an interesting question that people ask, and they continue to ask it, and I continue to give them the same answer. I am the Secretary of State of the State of Georgia, and we actually have five different divisions, but the number one is elections. And then, since I'm your chief election official, we do not endorse, and we never have endorsed. In fact, in 2020, when President Trump was running, I did not endorse, and all the other constitutional officers did. Well, I got in a little bit of hot water over that, but the reason is, is I understand how polarized America is, and I want everyone to understand, we're gonna run fair, honest, accurate elections. Um, So he used some code words, despite his deferring on that answer. One of the code words he used in talking about the presidential race was, he thinks character matters. And he also, in that answer, said, um, we have to look to the future. I think we got a sense exactly of how he feels about Donald Trump. Yeah, I think he, but what I wish, and and again, we can't force him to answer, what I would be curious about is what will be his answer if Donald Trump is the Republican nominee the way we expect will happen. Like, for example, Governor Kemp makes it clear that he's not a fan of Donald Trump. He'd like to see someone else be the nominee. I would think that Governor Kemp would, or and he might not say it in as plain of terms, but I don't think Governor Kemp would be upset if Nikki Haley is the nominee or even a Ron DeSantis. But Governor Kemp has also said, if Trump is the nominee, then I'm voting for Trump. That's what is the nuance that I wish we could get clarity on from Secretary of State Raffensperger. But again, he has the right to keep those thoughts private. Yeah, we we pressed him in three different ways. And he's given that answer before. And it's not terribly surprising because think about it this way, too. We heard Governor Kemp back in 2016 do the same exact thing when he was the Secretary of State. He said, look, I'm running elections. I'm not going to take a stance on this. I just want a fair election. And then once there's a nominee, uh, you know, you, you'll hear me weigh in. But at the same time, when I asked Secretary of State Raffensperger if he thought Donald Trump was fit for office, that's when he went into a more extended answer that brought up Abraham Lincoln, Ulysses Grant, mm-hmm. Ronald Reagan. Mm-hmm. It was a prolonged uh, but artful dodge. Well, you know what I thought was interesting about that answer was um, at a time when politics is so in the gutter, when so many um, people in electoral office now uh, tend to try to make uh, statements that get them on X or on other social media platforms when they're talking about the other side with outrage and anger and hostility. I thought Raffensperger last night became one of those guys who really talks about America. He talked about America uh, several times, the notion of uh, an Abraham Lincoln, the great president. And I I had never heard him talk that way before, but I can imagine, should he decide to run for governor, U.S. Senate or whatever, that he'll bring those kinds of uh, more philosophical uh, uh, observations about the country 
into his campaign. Yeah, and that's the kind of talk that I think helps you win a general election in Georgia. That's not the kind of talk that helps you win a Republican primary in Georgia. And that's going to be Raffensperger's problem. I mean, he he and Kemp were able to manage challengers from further right than them in 2022. But that's going to always be a concern for them in future elections. Can they ward off more conservative, Trumpy, MAGA, challengers if they talk the way they talk, particularly about elections and about the future of the party, because a lot of Republicans, for them, Ronald Reagan is no longer conservative enough. Mm -hmm. And like many politicians, Brad Raffensperger has different messages for different audiences. When I was out with him in Texas, um, he is not talking about Stacey Abrams necessarily. He's giving much the same message he gave last night, Bill, where he's talking about voter integrity and standing up and his actions and how he doesn't regret you know, how he handled the Donald Trump uh, phone call of 2021. Uh, but when I see him in Republican events, he is comparing, he is, you know, it, it, I'm being uh, paraphrasing here, but he is essentially comparing Stacey Abrams to Donald Trump, saying both of them refused to concede their election and saying that Stacey Abrams can be just as, uh, you know, guileful, I guess is the word, uh, or whatever word he used, as Donald Trump. And, it, it, you know, he so he caters his message to different audiences, but he does have that for the sort of red meat Republican audiences. And that's also why, in some sense, he is now pushing for this constitutional amendment to bar non-citizens in Georgia from voting in Georgia elections, even though that's already prohibited by state law. So um, talk about that a little bit more, Greg, because you uh, did ask him about that last night. Um, Raffensperger is not the most popular Republican among many of the uh, members of the GOP caucus in the legislature. Um, and yet, I imagine that anything they believe that might help uh, uh, cut down on what they think is illegal voting in the state, uh, will they be likely to support an initiative like that? Or is Raffensperger so much, uh, you know, sort of an outsider that that they would rather maybe take it up themselves and introduce it separate from Yeah, and, and he also made clear last night there's no examples of any non-citizens actually casting yeah. a ballot in Georgia. What he says that the constitutional amendment is needed in case a legal challenge prevails where, you know, there's not... Uh, you know, vetting of of whether or not you're a citizen on the voter registration rolls. But really, this is about messaging, you know, because it, it it this is the second or third year he's pushed for this constitutional amendment, it hasn't gone anywhere. But this kind of gives him a counter to all the Republican attacks he's facing. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about Democratic attacks. We're talking attacks from fellow Republicans that have really uh, sustained since 2020, you know, when then-Senators Kelly Leffler and David Perdue both called for his resignation, you know, there's still an element in the Republican Party who is calling for his head, and this gives him a way to go out to those Republican core conservative voters and say, I'm, this is what I'm pushing for, and they're ignoring me. Yeah, I, I, I thought the same thing about that. And, and in that respect, Tia, I want to play another soundbite and then have you uh, talk about it a little bit. Some of those Republicans calling for his head, of course, have complained, uh, Burt Jones being one of them, that Brad Raffensperger is not doing enough to update Dominion voting uh, systems to assure us that they are safe from uh, tampering. Some of them want to get rid of the Dominion voting machines entirely. Um, but Raffensperger's answer to why he has not done the kind of major 
upgrade that some Republicans are calling for was this. This is not an iPhone update. This is not just, oh, we got a new one. Okay, we'll just, tonight when I go to bed, I'll just put it, say I want my update. And when I wake up in the morning, it's all done. We are not connected to the internet. And because we're not connected to the internet, that means we've got to send a team of people. So we've got to send this team here, 97 man hours worth of people across the entire state. It's a big project. It's at least six to nine months worth of work. And it's not just us doing the work. It'll be also Dominion, but also then the counties. And right now, we are all getting ready to run the 2024 presidential primary. In fact, we need to start building ballots. We're doing the prelim work. But uh, sometime in January, about January 20th or so, we need a final final so that we can know what those district lines are and everything like that. So we're ready for the March 12th yeah, primary. Yeah, I mean, the man makes good sense. You know, yeah. I mean, I think one of the troubles is so much of the rhetoric around voting systems. And again, mostly from the right, but sometimes from the left. But it's not necessarily based on the expertise of people who actually are doing this work. And I think it does, again, when you hear him lay out why it's not so easy to just say update your equipment, and when you keep in mind that Georgia has 159 counties, and a lot of these are small rural counties with not a lot of infrastructure, not a lot of staff, not a lot of money, then to ask them to do this overhaul and not expect problems along the way um, going into a consequential election year with expected big turnout, he's like, you know, it's not time for that. And I, I think in most circumstances, we would want to trust the expert. We would want to trust the secretary of state who's been elected to run elections and who most people say elections have gone well recently. You're exactly right. And this is where the nuances are so, so complicated because this is one of the debates that will not only shape next year's legislative session, but also potentially a 2026 race for higher office mm -hmm. should Raffensperger or Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones seek the governor's office because uh, Lieutenant Governor Jones and his allies have demanded security improvements in response to a computer scientist who found some you know, very important vulnerabilities that could flip votes if it's successfully exploited. But what you're hearing Raffensperger say is, yeah, we, we can... We can pull off these updates, but it's not going to be as easy as flipping a switch, and it's going to cost a lot of money. We're talking more than $30 million. And he had a prop when he talked about it. It's not as easy as an iPhone update. He pulled his iPhone out of his pocket, said, you know, I can leave this on my bedside overnight, mm -hmm. and, it, and it updates. But one thing, Greg, that um, Raffensperger, I, I think he's already asked for this money, is some three-plus million dollars to install equipment in each polling place that will allow all of us as voters to be able to see when when we when we turn in that ballot with that QR code on it we haven't been able to see for sure that it's accurate but he's installing equipment Tia that will allow us to uh, uh, look at that vote run it through the machine and see it that we have been uh, recorded as voting the way we said we wanted to. And, and I just, I've said this, I'm, every time we bring this up, I'm going to remind people that the same people now complaining, we should be able to mark our own ballots and we need to directly see what people have marked are the Republicans who were in control when the state decided to go with these Dominion voting machines 
that did not have pre-marked paper ballots. That was an option on the table that, quite frankly, Democrats were saying they wanted. And the Republicans who were in charge said, no, we don't need to mark the paper ballots. We're going to have the machine. We're going to mark them on the machine. And the machine's going to spit out a receipt, so to speak, and you can make sure it's right. Um, But that was a choice that Republicans made. And now they're complaining and saying that was that's leading to, you know, undermining the integrity of the election. Yeah. And I think, look, this is a debate that also crosses party lines, too, in some ways, because we also heard from a Democratic lawmaker last night who asked Secretary Brad Raffensperger a question, you know, about going towards more handmarked paper ballots Mm -hmm. as well. This is why this debate is so thorny, even if we were not talking about an SB 202 style overhaul of, of, of election laws, even if it's a minor change, it's going to lead to a major debate in the legislature. Before we leave this subject, what else uh, occurred to, to you, Greg, and you, Tia, as you watched Raffensperger last night? You know, I want to play one more clip of audio. Sure. Because this is where I asked uh, Secretary of State Raffensperger about the personal attacks he's been facing from Burt Jones um, and and um, and you know, who who literally put something on a uh, put an ad on a milk carton saying that Brad Raffensperger is going missing. I don't respond to every barking dog. Mm. I don't find that it's really helpful sometimes. It didn't work in 2020. It's not working this year. It probably won't work in the future. Mm. Yeah, that's Brad Raffensperger. You know, look again. He could run for governor. So could the l- l- lieutenant governor. Um, but you're hearing him saying, "I'm just going to ignore this for now." Yeah, it's too uh, early. I, Tia, my last night watching Raffensperger on stage, forget about whether you agree with all of his conservative politics or not, because uh, he is a conservative Republican. We always have to remind people of the fact that, like Brian Kemp, uh, it, just because they didn't do Trump's bidding uh, at various times in the last uh, years, uh, they are not moderates. Uh, Raffensperger isn't, neither is Kemp. But he did feel like the adult in the room last night, I thought. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, that's been his appeal. That's why he and Governor Kemp won pretty handily, I would argue, in 2022. And again, when you hear Raffensperger speak, particularly about the mechanics of running an election, you know, he's still pretty partisan and pretty conservative on some of the kind of... um, thoughts about Democrats and Stacey Abrams and thoughts about uh, some of the complaints from Democrats about how elections are run, but actually talking about the machines, talking about the integrity of the election system, I think to a lot of people, he sounds trustworthy. He sounds um, credible. Um, and, and, And I think that carries a lot of weight, again, with the the electorate writ large. His problem is going to be whether his fellow Republicans, that message resonates. Should he run again in the future? Um, uh, Natalie Mendenhall is frantically signaling. We've got to get to a break. But Greg, one last question that I've got to ask you, um, and we've already referred to it, is um, we're still uncertain what's going to happen to legislative districts. Steve Jones has a hearing on on December 20th. And one of you, your Patricia, asked Raffensperger, when do you absolutely have a drop-dead deadline for uh, drawing, uh, 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 for, for putting out the uh, ballot and making sure that everything is ready to go? 
And that's not very long it's, from now. It's very, it's, I think he said January 27th or 28th. It is coming right up, especially when you think of there's a December 20th court hearing with Judge Jones. Then you could have an appeal to the 11th Circuit. So the clock is already ticking on this. And yeah, he needs to start building, his office needs to start building these ballots by late January. All right. Uh, doing that in advance of a presidential primary set for what, March 12th of next year. And, um, now we're going to turn, but we'll take a break first, but we're going to turn to an issue that is very likely to come back to uh, the legislature this coming session, um, a bill that's floated around for quite some time that would um, provide vouchers, state-sponsored vouchers, so that parents could send their children to private schools. And we're going to uh, talk with uh, State Representative Misha Maynard, who actually changed parties from Democratic to Republican because she was so upset, among other things, that uh, Democrats did not support the notion of providing vouchers. She'll be with us after we come back from this break. This is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Bill Nygut. Twice daily, delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. Stay on top of all the important news scoops and exclusives from the AJC's politics team. Just go to AJC.com newsletters to sign up. AJC.com newsletters. Guys, before we turn to our next plan segment, I, I, I want to make sure our listeners know about news that just broke literally moments ago while we were on the air. The U.S. Supreme Court has announced that it will decide on the availability of mifepristone, which is the commonly used abortion pill that uh, Food and Drug Administration said should be widely available to uh, women uh, looking uh, for uh, abortions. Uh, and now this is the first major case on abortion since Roe v. Wade was overturned. So, Greg, we won't get into it in detail. That's a huge development. We'll be watching that and another U.S. Supreme Court case because there's also news that the Supreme Court has agreed to take up a case that could derail hundreds of January 6th felony prosecutions and could also deal a blow to the federal case against Donald Trump. So the Supreme Court's going to have a very busy session. Yeah, that's right. And uh, the federal prosecutor has asked the Supreme Court to expedite the hearing on whether Donald Trump is exempt from prosecution. So you're right. Supreme Court's going to be very important to us. All right. But the state legislature, which will begin meeting again in January, is really crucial uh, to your beat, Greg Bluestein, to uh, Patricia Murphy. We'll be talking a lot about that. And one of the issues that is going to be fascinating to watch unfold is that once again, we know that a group of Republicans are going to push hard for something they've tried to accomplish for years, really. And that is a state-supported voucher so that parents have the choice to send their children 
to private schools. Yeah, this has been a years-long, really probably decades-long debate under the under the Gold Dome. And we have with us today State Representative Misha Maynard, who last year, or early this year, I should say, was I think you were the only Democrat at the time to vote for this measure, Representative Maynard, and you've since switched parties. Um, but can you talk a little bit about why uh, you broke with your former party's ranks to vote for uh, this, what we call school voucher bill, but also what supporters tend to call school choice bills? I like to call it a parent choice bill. Um, the parents in my district, which I represent Atlanta public schools, some of the schools in my district, 3% are meeting reading proficiency, 2% meeting math proficiency. If you get to a point where people or children can't read or write, we're in this world of artificial intelligence. Goldman Sachs has said in three in 10 years, 300 million jobs are going to be lost to artificial intelligence. What are the kids in my district going to do? And so they're going to be in desperate situations that leads to crime. And so in my opinion, this parent choice bill is much larger than just um, a voucher, if you will. It is about quality of life. It's about the future of generations of people that have been living in poverty with no changes. Um, Representative Maynard, I, I, it, in early this year, you did become the first African-American woman to serve in the General Assembly as a Republican after this historic switch from the Democratic to the Republican Party, it was you, you knew it was going to be a controversial move, and indeed it was. And, and I know there were a number of reasons you decided to cross over and uh, caucus with the Republican Party as a Republican, but certainly you were very upset, I think it's fair to say, that um, Democrats did not want to join you in supporting what you call uh, the, the parental uh, voucher bill. You're absolutely right. Um, in fact, Greg and others were there when the Democrats literally almost stood up on their chairs screaming in support. They were so happy to not support underserved Black children. Um, but yet you could have a trans bill, you could have abortion bills on the table and people are crying because they are so upset. So my thing is, if you care that much about women, if you care that much about the trans community, why don't you care about underserved Black children? That is my real issue. Um, the other issue with that is most of the people, if you ask them individually, Democrats, they will say they support the bill, but leadership does not allow them to. So you have people being hypocritical, but the problem with being hypocritical in politics, people's lives are at stake. And so that is truly why I switch parties. I, I can't take the hypocrite politics when it impacts the people that I represent. I, I can't be a part of it. So, Representative Maynard, hey, this is my first time being able to talk to you. So I'm, I'm so excited. I, I'm so curious about your decision to become a Republican, especially because it's often framed around one issue. So my question is, was is this the one issue you agree with Republicans or it's just one of, for example, on abortion, on LGBTQ um, uh, right. protections or rights, on voting rights, on gun safety? 
do you agree with Republicans generally on those on those topics? It definitely is more than just the school choice bill. Um, I believe in human rights. I believe we should not be uh, putting a small group of people in a bucket, lifting them up to be a priority over all people. So if we could be for all people, if we could be for all people having the right to do what they want to do, um, then I would be a happy person, but that's just not how politics is. And so to your point, when it comes to um, what are some Republican ideals, I believe in what the words on the paper say. And so after the words are on the paper, people come out of their mouth explaining things the way that they want to explain things. But, and I, I will say Republicans have a bad um, message. They don't know how to message what they are trying to say. But luckily I can read. And so I know what the legislation will do. So I just want to drill down on just one example. Do you agree with Republicans that there should be, generally speaking, limited access to abortion? I do not believe that. Can I tell you a story? Let me tell you a story. This is a good story. So just switch parties. I have been pro-choice. I've received awards for being pro-choice. I have two beautiful daughters. Um, me personally, my stance has always been pro-life for me, right? But that is my choice to be that way. Um, but I went to this conference sponsored by Alec. At the conference, I was the only, let's just say Democrat, although I had just switched parties. I was in this room. My spirit kept le leading me to different tables to sit at. And finally, I was going to one table and then my spirit was like, no, don't go there. And about after four times, I ended up at this table with um, a pro-life organization. And at the table, we had a discussion and she really enlightened me to things I just wasn't really aware of. Who are getting the abortions? They are Black females, represent the most abortions out of any other um, demographic. Yet, when we are saying, let's get an abortion, but people are getting abortions because they feel like they have no other alternative, right? They're getting abortion because they're saying, I live in a dire situation. And if I have this abortion, then it will make my life not even more dire, if you will. But with this organization, if someone Googles um, abortion, it's a 50-50 chance they're going to go to a Planned Parenthood. It's a 50-50 chance they'll go to a pro-life organization. If the person so happens to click on the pro-life organization, the questions that are going to be asked are, do you have food, clothing, and shelter? Are you safe? Do you have a job? Did you graduate from high school? They're going to give them resources. And so since that time, I've met literally hundreds of women that have chosen by accident a pro-life website. They have their child, they finish school, they're in careers they thought that they would never have. Um, so I believe that we do probably push abortion way too much instead of getting to the root of the issue. If you look at the demographics, Black people 
in the census, our numbers are going down. They're going to continue to go down if we're continually aborting our children. I think we need to talk about the root of why there is abortion instead of saying, like in the airport this weekend, there was a sign that said abortion, abortion, abortion. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I hope it gives you some insight on where my frame of mind is. Thank you for that, uh, Representative Minor. Greg, I I, I do want to get back to vouchers in a minute, but I also think it's it's fair to say that I'm sure Representative Minor is probably correct that there are people who have been, who have accidentally, when they were seeking a Planned Parenthood uh, a website, perhaps gone to a pro-life website where they have been convinced not to have an abortion. There are many people who would say that's been a deceptive practice and one that the pro-choice movement uh, is, is very uh, concerned about. But that and that's fine. and there's also i think she referred to this notion that one of the things about being pro about abortion and black women is that it's being promoted to reduce the population of black people which i think is is a really really dramatic uh statement to, to make Hey, Representative Maynard, just to close the loop on that, um, and going back to Tia's original question, would you be supportive of abortion limits? Um, and do you see yourself, you know, you've broke ranks with Democrats plenty of times. Do you see yourself as someone who could break ranks with Republicans on issues that are near and dear to conservative voters? You know, when I got to the state capitol, I was told I was a moderate. Um, with that being said, I was a moderate as a Democrat, and that means I'm a moderate as a Republican. So technically, I have not changed. My value systems have not changed. There's just an R behind my name instead of a D. Um, And so in the past, there are things that have come down the loop that Republicans may support that I just completely did not support. But the good thing about the Republican side is it's much more of a bigger tent. And the school choice, parent choice bill is an example just because you don't vote one way, um, they're not going to oust you per se. They're not going to beat you up. You have the ability to have an opinion on the Republican side. You don't have the ability to do that on the Democrat side. Representative Maynard, to, to stick with uh, school vouchers for for the time being, um, how do you respond to the to teachers, to public school administrators, to many Democrats, uh, to the um, argument that every dollar you take away from Georgia's public schools and give it to a voucher so someone can go to a private school, you are in fact weakening the ability of public schools to become the best they can be. I've had so many teachers reach out to me since I switched parties saying that they support parent choice and school choice. So. Right now, we have the uh, the special needs scholarship bill. You know who uses uses the special needs scholarship bill? Many, many teachers. Um, so I've been throughout my district talking to teachers about this very subject, and they use they use the bills. You know, they are parents just like anyone else. To get to the money, Atlanta Public Schools last year, their budget was almost one point five billion dollars. With that $1.5 billion, you have failing schools. Um, I'm going to just put some estimates on the per pupil funding, but let's say that, and, and it's a little bit more than this, 
But Atlanta public schools, let's just say they get $20,000 per student to educate every year. The voucher says take $6,000, parent can use that money where they want to. $14,000 stays with the school, even though the child is not there. So at the end, there's a net gain of $14,000. The reason I say net gain is because there are people, legislators, that do not send their children to public school. That is a net, that is a minus $20,000. So you can't be against a pro-parent bill that only takes away 6,000, but because you think the public schools aren't good enough for your child, you wanna take the entire 20,000 away. That is how I answer that question. Representative, we gotta hit a quick break, but before we go, um, you know, the, you mentioned the, the the cheers from Democrats on the floor of the House earlier this year because it was so unexpected that this bill would fail. And it failed largely in part, not just because of Democrat opposition, but because 16 House Republicans revolted against their own party and, and blocked the voucher's passage. My question is, do you sense that anything has changed? Because I'm hearing from some of those 16 members that they're still going to be opposed to this measure. So is there a kind of a sea change in anything that has been done to change their minds with the, either the language of the bill or uh, pressure being put on them? I've spoken to some of those 16 people um, and they've been some really honest discussions because I can only tell them how this bill impacts my district. Some of their answers are, you know, I, I don't, none of my schools are in the bottom 25% because the bill only impacts schools that are in the bottom 25%. So failing school districts, most failing school districts are schools where people are living in poverty. There is this notion that the voucher is going to go to uh, people that have, I see his hand wavings. I don't know what that means. But um, so to answer your question, I think that some probably will change because discussions have been happening at the local level with their actual constituents versus the school board. Um, what you saw was a signal that we have got to uh, get to a break, uh, Representative okay. Maynard, but it was a real pleasure to have you with us on Politically Georgia today. So thank you very much. We're obviously going to be paying close attention to this voucher bill uh, when the session gets underway in January. Okay, we're, we're going to take our final break of the show. When we come back, let's go down to the Georgia coast and talk to AJC Savannah Bureau Chief Adam Van Brimmer about some of the big news happening down that way. From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want the blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Greg Lustein, we don't see Tia Mitchell right in the studio very often. And as we've said before, glad that she's here with us this week. We also don't get to see Savannah Bureau Chief Adam Van Brimmer in person either. We see him on Teams meetings all the time. Adam, we're so glad to have you here in Atlanta to talk with us today. Happy to be here and in this, this temporary studio, but very mm -hmm. appropriate and 
Useful student. We, we, we're very happy here. It's cozy. Adam, let's start off with the question um, of what feels to me like deja vu all over again to some extent. We know that, what, 10 years ago? You'll tell me uh, how long ago it was that um, the city of Atlanta um, and the state kind of worked together to get federal funding to deepen the Savannah port to make sure that bigger ships could come in and we could be competitive with, what, New Jersey, uh, which has a major East Coast port as well. Now, they're looking to expand it again, deepen it, uh, the uh, river again, build a new bridge, a new, what's called the Talmadge Bridge, all in the same interest to be able to stay competitive. What, what is this all about? And add a new terminal and yeah. and reconfigure an existing and terminal. And we're talking about billions of dollars. Billions of dollars. It, it, to put it very succinctly is the last time they deepened the harbor, it was because Panama Canal was being widened and could it accommodate much larger ships. Now, because of changes in, in international global economies and shipping routes, uh, most of, not most, a, a growing percentage of Good shipments coming out of Asia aren't coming out of China. They're coming out of Vietnam and India and places that, because of geography, can use the Suez Canal rather than the Panama Canal. The Suez Canal is much larger than the Panama Canal. Economies of scale mean that people are using bigger ships. Bigger ships will start calling on the East Coast. Savannah's River isn't deep enough. The bridge isn't high enough. So, hence, the big push does that mean that, again, because we just got through deepening mm -hmm. the Savannah River, does that mean that all those billions of dollars were a waste? Not a waste because, uh, you know, you're five feet closer to what the ultimate goal is, which right now they're saying they want to get to 50 or 52 feet. Uh, so now you're at 47. The interesting thing is, is in this last deepening, they tried to get to 48 or 49 and we're told, no, you can't go to 48 or 49. You have to go to 47. For the environmental reasons? For, for a, a host of reasons. But yeah, environmental reasons is one of them. So what has changed in the years since that all of a sudden they think they can get to 50 feet? And that's going to be the real challenge as this long process uh, begins in Washington with you, eventually comes back to the state, and then eventually into the Savannah area. So Adam, we're talking about a lengthy push that even if wildly successful, could still take a decade and all sorts of bipartisan unity. And, you know, the last push we saw former Governor Nathan Deal and former Atlanta Mayor Kasim Reed, you know, strike that alliance and, and push it all over the state saying what's good for Savannah is good for the rest of the state's economy as well. But already we're hearing some pushback. Mayor Van, Van Johnson came on our air not that long ago and said, look, there's some environmental concerns that need to be worked out. Uh, do you see the sor same sort of unity behind this that we saw in the last push to deepen the port? I think there's unity, and it's interesting because I also heard the mayor, when Janet Yellen was at the port just a couple of months ago, advocate for the deepening. So it's it's very fluid when it comes to politicians, as, as you know. I do think it's, it's no coincidence that they're making this push now with Governor Kemp in office and the fact that in 2026 you could see a, a change in – you're going to see a change in leadership. Do you see a change in party? Do you see a change in viewpoint and it become a, a Democrat win? So that's really uh, these next couple of years are going to be key in order to, to formulating that support 
in terms of pushing the deepening forward. Adam, with more with larger ships coming in, it means more uh, 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 cargo. Uh, uh, what do you call them? Uh, container containers, TEUs, yeah. Um, and that means they need a place to be located, and that's part of this expansion. And there are some who are worried about what this is going to do to the very kind of look and feel of Savannah. Yeah, the expansion is interesting because while the deepening was going on, they were working with the South Carolina Department of Transportation to create a new terminal on the South Carolina side of the Savannah River. Make a long story short, Charleston and Savannah are rivals. Uh, The two port authorities basically have gotten to the point where they can't work it out. That project is stalled. Now, that project would have been perfect because it's downriver. It wouldn't have involved. It would not involve the bridge. It would have been out of sight and out of mind completely. Uh, But because of the disagreement between Georgia and South Carolina, Georgia started to look more on this side of the river. And it's interesting, the new terminal location they picked is on Hutchison Island, which is an island across the Savannah River. It's still in Georgia. It's in the middle of the Savannah River. And it is a largely undeveloped island. So you're not really going to have the effect that they've been having in uh, West Savannah and some of the suburbs by putting a terminal over there. Plus, cargo that comes in there that needs to go north doesn't have to come through Savannah. It goes into South Carolina. So things are going to be better, not worse. I've got that backwards. Uh, Depends on who you talk to. But Mm -hmm. yeah, I think so. So talk about other things going on in Savannah as our Savannah Bureau Chief. One of the things that when you've talked to us about Savannah, I know we don't have a lot of time, but you talk about the key issue in Savannah is affordability and how that's such a driver of how people, locals experience the city now. What's going on? New mayor, what's being done to address that big issue? Yeah, affordability is is a big thing, especially now with a new job creator coming in right up the highway in Hyundai, 8,500 people with the suppliers you're looking at 15 or 16,000 people. Our unemployment rate's 3.1%. So you're going to look at bringing a lot of new people into the area to work, and there's just not the housing, and the real estate is incredible. And so the it's a real challenge these next couple of years to build out the housing, to build out the transportation networks. There's going to be a lot of talk of it kind of under under behind the scenes at the General Assembly as they try to come up with some solutions on workforce, on housing, on infrastructure. So that's really something to watch as Savannah grows. Adam Van Brimmer, I wish we had uh, have more time with you uh, today, but we definitely want you to come back and mm-hmm. talk about issues along the coast um, sometime really soon. But thanks for being with us uh, today. My pleasure. Uh, Tia Mitchell, Greg Bluestein. Um, been great to have this conversation with the two of you today. We are uh, going to uh, say goodbye for now. Thanks so much for spending time with us today on Politically Georgia. You can now hear Politically Georgia live on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta weekdays at 10 a.m. Or follow Politically Georgia on your favorite podcast app and hear new episodes every afternoon. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review. Share Politically Georgia with a friend as well. Join us again tomorrow for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. 
Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Oh, 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 oh,